Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the one of these that we do where we talk about what we watched since the last time we did one of these. Yeah. It's been a couple weeks mm-hmm. because I was out of town. Yes, um, and I was not. You were not out of town after weeks of teasing our first ever trip to Sundance. It ended up being my first ever trip to Sundance because you came down with the swine flu. Yeah. H1N1. Absolutely. That's just, a, a, uh, just a flu. We don't know for sure. We don't know that it's not the swine flu. I have been handling a lot of pigs lately. It's kind of, it's a little, it's, you know, David, I don't know how long it's been since you've been to church, but it's just a little, uh, <laughs> a little thing that you do um, to ward off evil spirits. <laughs> you're not a rattlesnake handling exactly. church. Yeah. You're just a pig handling church. Yeah. We're, it's just kind of a way of saying like, Hey, we're not kosher. You know, we don't, we don't, okay. uh, we don't live by that anymore. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was very frustrating. Uh, our, me and Jen, we have this theory. Well, I tend to physicalize my stress, uh, whether it be, uh, the, my, that weird shit I get on my hands yeah, or I, yeah, I um, kidney stones or like the tightness in my chest, uh-huh. which I think I've told you about. And then like, did you remember, uh, on my forum, I had this like cigar. It looked yes, like I in uh, the breakfast club, yeah. uh, but nobody yeah. put out, Jen did not put a cigar out on my arm. Uh, and it's purely stress related. So, uh, and it is not at all unheard of that when I'm incredibly stressed, I will get sick. And I was very stressed about Sundance and my body figured out a way <laughs> to alleviate that stress. Uh, and it was very frustrating and I'm sorry that I wasn't able to go, but, uh, but yes, uh, listeners, I will say that uh, a lot of uh, there's a lot of comprehensive coverage of uh, David's time at Sundance, and then Matt Warren is is still there, I believe. No, he's back now. He's but, back, okay, but he but, is still posting stuff. Right. Um, so yeah, between me and Matt, there's plenty of stuff to read on the website, and then um, uh, next week, once everyone's back, me, yeah. you, Matt, and Scott will do a whole episode yeah. talking about about Sundance. I, I mean. I guess you don't. I really don't really need, need to, to be, be here. here. <laughs> you know. um, uh, but I'll just let you guys in, and then I'll go take a nap or something. <laughs> that's not what we're going to talk about here. Today Indeed. we're going to talk about what we watched. What did you watch? Okay, so I watched. Uh, the first thing I watched was Electric Boogaloo: The Wild Untold Story of Canon Films, directed by Mark Hartley. Now I had known a little bit about Canon Films. Uh, they came about. <clears throat> In uh, the 19, I believe the the late 70s, early 80s, and they made just that 80s action schlock. You know, they made the death, the various Death Wish sequels. They worked yeah. with Chuck Norris a lot, um, and uh, occasionally they would have a hit. Occasionally they could attract a real star, but for the most part, it was just unbelievable shit. Uh-huh. Um, but made with tremendous enthusiasm, like very much an Ed Wood type of thing. And, uh, and I, that's the thing I had heard that I had heard, uh, Golan Globus. Um, I had heard right. that, that director producer team, uh, I guess occasionally two producers, uh, pretty regularly, but I didn't, I don't think I ever associated them specifically with Canon films. And, uh, so it was very interesting and at times kind of inspiring because it's just these two guys who made movies in, in, uh, Israel and, uh, does that pen not work? I'm sorry. You didn't have to. I'm, I'm curious. Listeners, look, we're all laid back here. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, use one of the ones that's next to the keyboard. So it's just these two, uh, 
Israeli guys who just love movies and then they come here and have a pretty good run of success, but they overextend themselves. They borrow too much money. They, um, they rely too much on certain movies being hit. Like they made Superman four. No reason to think that the fourth Superman movie would not do well. Right. Um, except that they made it on the cheap and it's widely considered one of the worst movies of all time. Um, <laughs> and so it's that sort of thing. They made masters of the universe. I didn't know that. You remember that when we were yeah, kids? Yeah. And, uh, I never saw it, but yeah. Oh, I know I they, they also made the, uh, the Delta force movies, right? Yes. With Chuck Norris. Yes. Yeah. They do over the top. Yes, they did. And yeah. they thought that was going to be, they paid Sylvester Stallone a lot of money for that. <clears throat> I believe he had said, I, I believe he had said something like, I am never working with those guys. You could pay me $10 million. And they're like, how about 12? And he's like, well, all right. Um, so yeah, it's, it's often very funny. Um, they bring in a lot of, they bring in people like, um, certainly like a, like a Bo Derek, uh, they bring in Robert Forster and just actors that worked with them, uh, other filmmakers, uh, editors and stuff like that. And it was, it winds up just being very interesting. I do like a good documentary about parts of Hollywood that I'm just not that aware of. And I was aware of certain Canon films, but I don't think I was aware of what the company was. And mm-hmm. so I think the film is available on Netflix and it's worth watching. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's not super in depth, um, but if you're a fan of movies, you'll enjoy it. Okay. So that's the first thing. Uh, and then I also watched, <laughs> I, I guess I was in a, you'll see as I list these, I guess I was in a, a certain mood when I was sick. Okay. I watched the Irvin Kirshner film RoboCop two. Oh, which, which I've never seen, which, okay. It's not as good as the first one, but it's kind of great. And it's written by Frank Miller, right? Yes, I think he wrote this. I think he's story by and then co-written by, okay. and then he has a cameo in it as well. Um, there are certain things in there that you feel like, oh, that's that's Frank Miller all over. Uh-huh. Um, there, there's some good satire in there. Like it's called RoboCop Two, but within the film, the characters themselves are looking for RoboCop Two. They're trying to create a new RoboCop uh-huh. because the first one was so successful in Detroit that they're trying to come up with another one and it's just not working out as well. Um, <laughs> and so it's like, that's yeah, not yeah. bad. And then they still try to do the commercial things, but they don't, uh, the commercial parodies and they're kind of funny, but they don't work in quite as well. Okay. Um, and the story is interesting. You've got Tom Noonan as the, as the villain, but then within the, the little cadre of villains, you have a kid who's like 12, who takes everything, who takes over. And it's, it's very, it's a very strange movie, but it's, you know, it's Irving Kirshner who did empire strikes back. So Uh he's a very competent filmmaker and it is definitely, it tries to stay true to the spirit of the first one. And I think it is a very worthy follow up to the first one. I, if uh, I have it on, uh, it's available on HBO go and that's how I watched it. And it's, uh, I, I I highly recommend it. If you like the first one, it's not as good, but, I would recommend seeing it. So that's All right. Okay. Next. Okay. You. Next up is a movie that I know you saw. Okay. Um, uh, I also saw it as of now. <laughs> that's what we're talking about <laughs> yeah. on this thing. It'd be weird if you hadn't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, it's, it's called Mississippi grind. Okay. Yeah. I saw that. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, 
Okay. Uh, as long as we're being full disclosure, I had a weird day at work and I am having a really hard time focusing yeah. right now. So I'm um, sorry if my insights are not uh, so insightful. This I'm, is a big grind was good. I am. I'm, I'm honestly having trouble yeah. uh, thinking and talking right now. Um, yeah, I, I, I really liked it. Um, I think uh, I'm a guy who says that Ryan Reynolds is a good actor and yet I still can be surprised Yeah, because he's great in this. Yeah, he is. Um, in that you get why he's, you get why Ben Mendelsohn's character sees him as sort of beguiling. Yeah. He's very charming, but there's also, uh, there's some menace. I don't know. If menace is the right word, but there's some instability there that is troubling. Yeah. And it's, you know, you see why Ben Mendelsohn doesn't see that. Yeah. I don't know. I, 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 I have some, I would like to, at some point work through my thoughts on the way the movie ends. Uh, but this is not the place to do that. Cause right. it'd be a huge spoiler. Anyway. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, uh, all the performances are great. I love, you know, location photography especially when part of it is uh, my hometown of st louis missouri yeah. which you know. I, the, when i saw it i was like oh david's gonna love <laughs> yeah. this yeah because it's not i mean maybe some of the indoor stuff was shot somewhere else you know in yeah. louisiana where they shot a lot of this stuff but like they're on the mississippi there's the yeah there's the st louis arch like right behind them it's uh yeah it's uh it'd be hard to fake uh i yeah i highly recommend it yeah it's uh i I've been a fan of Ben Mendelsohn for a while, but I really, and Ryan Reynolds is also very good and I'll get to him in a moment, but I, I thought Ben Mendelsohn just really is doing some, some good stuff. Like it's, it's rare to see characters. You see plenty of characters that like hate themselves, but it's kind uh-huh. of like movie hate themselves. Uh-huh. This is like real self-loathing. Like there's a moment I, I keep going back to it. There's a moment when, Ryan Reynolds is asking Ben Mendelsohn, like, well, who do you owe money to? Uh-huh. And he just has this moment. He's just like, and he kind of has this smile on his face, but it's, it's like, he also feels, it looks like he's about to have a nervous breakdown. Yeah. It's just like everybody. And he yeah. just says it in a very, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't say it like it, Gary Oldman in the professional. Yeah. Everyone. <laughs> uh, so I really like that. And I felt like it was a very lived in performance. Uh, but then at the same time, what I like about Ryan Reynolds is that there is a charm to him that if done one way is very movie star charming doing, but if you do it another way, it's everyday charming. Mm -hmm. And I think this is very much that, uh, where you recognize that there's something underneath that it's, you know, it's, it's not glamorous. It's just a guy who's confident and is good looking and everything will be fine. And the two of them have a really nice on screen chemistry. And it's just, I I liked that movie so much more than I thought I was going to, but I probably shouldn't have been surprised given who made it. Right. Yeah. So people who made half Nelson. Yeah. Which I loved. Yeah. Uh, I will say one more thing. Uh, there's a part at the end when they get to new Orleans where Ryan Reynolds, uh, takes a detour to go into a bar to watch someone sing. Mm-hmm. I, I once, uh, celebrated, uh, one of my birthdays in that bar. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. There is also, uh, in new Orleans, there is a very brief cameo by James Toback. Did you see that? Oh, that's right. Yeah. Is that strange. Yeah. Looking even more, uh, like, uh, Dr. John at this point. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was new Orleans. So, uh, um, all right. Okay. What's next for you? So for Christmas, I got that uh, super awesome Warner Archive or just Warner Brothers uh, horror movie box set. 
uh, the, like the hammer horror movies okay. that we saw advertised at comic-con when we went to there, mm-hmm. uh, went, went to that, that panel. Um, so I, so I watched a couple movies from that. I'll talk about the first one. Frankenstein must be destroyed, uh, directed by Terrence Fisher and featuring, uh, Peter Cushing as uh, Frankenstein. And I'm really not that familiar with Peter Cushing, uh, outside of grand Moff Tarkin. And, <clears throat> and I, I think, I genuinely feel like I may have only seen one hammer film in my life and in watching this and then the next one that I'll get to, uh, and then there are two others in this set, which I'm, I'm eager to watch. Um, and I recognize I'm not saying anything that new. Uh, I love hammer horror movies. (laughs) There's just something very special about them. There's a, they're not scary, scary. Mm -hmm. Um, but they're creepy and they're often quite disturbing. There's a scene where Peter Cushing basically rapes somebody. Mm. Um, and, and I was looking it up and, uh, both Peter Cushing and the actors like, Hey, this seems like a bit much. Can we not do this? Uh, but, uh, but yeah. And it's, uh, and in, in the film, he doesn't bring somebody back to life, but he, uh, swaps out, uh, he does like a brain transplant so mm-hmm. that a guy wakes up and he is in a, inside a different body and speaking with a different voice and it just kind of goes crazy. And there's a, there's just a lot going on in the movie. And I was just like, I love this tone um, because it's very macabre and very melodramatic and all that sort of thing. Uh, but is also committed to being a low level disturbing and, I don't know. It just really, uh, really got me. I was very happy to have watched it and I'm eager to, and I know that there are dozens of hammer horror movies and I'm excited to watch every single one of them at this point. So there you go. Okay. Uh, next up for me is a movie that I, I watched this because, uh, the one only reason I watched this because it is not a, it was not a very well reviewed movie overall. Okay. Um, but our friend Amy Nicholson, mm-hmm. when she did her, best of 2015 list she put this on the top 10 mm-hmm. so i was curious so i went ahead and checked out american ultra oh i and saw that you know what uh, amy's right the movie's great i don't know about top 10 great but it's great i don't know if i'd say it was great i liked it a lot i was i i think i saw it early enough that when the review started coming out i remember being like well hang on guys like it's not Wait, why does everybody, why is everyone ragging on this movie? It's, I think, I thought it was good to very good. Definitely watchable Um, and worth watching. And I think it's this guy, Max Landis, who wrote it. Mm -hmm. Um, I I feel like, uh, you know, I can't keep up with all the stuff that as a, 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 you know, a liberal on the internet, I'm supposed to be outraged by. Yeah. I have trouble keeping up. I feel like there's, there's a some, lot. <laughs> I feel like there's some reason I'm not supposed to like Max Landis, but I don't know what it is. So, uh, who cares? I think it's just that he's a little bit obnoxious. Like he was, well, no, he, no, he, oh yeah. I could tell you from personal experience, he is a little bit oh, really? obnoxious. Okay. Um, I happen to be on the He same. showed up at work today and no, really, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, this past year I was on the same, uh, train car to Comic-Con with him. Oh, boy. Um, and, uh, I'm sure he meant well, but he is definitely, uh, a lot to take. Um, in, uh, not that we, I, I didn't talk to him at all, but just yeah. being in proximity with him is a lot to take that said. And I also, uh, I, I had a bad idea of who Max Landis was because of, the first thing I ever saw that he wrote was a very terrible installment of Showtime's Masters of Horror that oh, okay. uh, his dad John Landis directed, hmm. 
but I'm doing the math. I mean, Max Landis must have been like, I don't it was know, probably 20 years yeah. something when he yeah. wrote that. So I can forgive it. Um, I haven't seen Chronicle, which I hear is good. It is very good. But I had, uh, coincidentally, you know, uh, before I watched American Ultra, I had been reading he, his new um, Superman miniseries that's halfway through its, I think, six issue run right now um, in comic books mm-hmm. uh, called Superman American Alien that I'm loving. And uh, so that paired with American Ultra, I'm uh, finding that I am a fan of this guy as a writer. I don't mm-hmm. know what he did or said that is pissing people off. And maybe if I read it, I would be. Uh, but just let's just separate that and say as a as a writer, uh, as a creator of uh, yeah. uh, fictional stories, I'm really a big fan because he really finds a way to use um, outsized genre trappings and um situations um a creatively but also as a vehicle for some uh pretty heavy and universal uh emotional stuff and i think american ultra to me is a movie about the feeling that you might not trust yourself you might think that you're a fuck up or a misfit or have a lot of self-doubt and but you might have someone that you think is amazing that loves you back and you might not you might not even understand why they love you but the fact that they do is enough to keep you going and to me that's what this movie is about and i found it so incredibly touching i'd say i mean so much of uh, and I've, I've said this a fair amount on my other podcast. Um, so when it comes to practical things, you know, the things required to continue eating and living, <laughs> I'm not great at it. Jen tends to be better at that. Uh, okay. I'm more of, we, we've, we've very generously said that I'm the big picture person and she's uh-huh. the detail person. Um, <clears throat> and you know, when you see, when I see Jesse Eisenberg, trying so badly to do things right and uh-huh. to and to to love and support his girlfriend and then just failing for reasons that certainly he couldn't have anticipated right. um I, I i felt so uh i felt such a kinship for him uh and yeah and but i also like what max landis does with with character in general there are a lot of characters that are surprisingly developed now there are really only two leads right but when we see like Topher grace who i think maybe is a, a little bit simplistic but then connie Britton and then john leguizamo and his his friends and by the end walt walton goggins yeah has a great final scene yeah which is very clive owen and uh born identity <laughs> yeah um yeah. but yeah, it's it's a film that deserves to be seen. And a lot of people said it was like one of the worst of the year. And I just feel like there's something to be said for and I think this is this is what Max Landis got in, got in trouble for is after the film did not do well, he took to Twitter and got very upset uh oh. saying that like he was trying to do something new and something original and it just and apparently that's not what people want. So I can understand why he would get frustrated. I guess. Um, but I think people viewed it as like petulant and well, he wrote a good movie and we're talking, yeah. uh, the <clears throat> director did a good job too. Um, yeah. his name is alliterative. Uh, no, it's N N it's like Nori knows Yeah. I don't, I don't remember. I feel bad about that, but yeah. Yeah. I do think of it as a Max Landis movie. Yeah. Uh, but that's okay. Um, what's next for you? Next for me, I rewatched the Alamo. 
This is the, the John, John Lee Hancock. Yeah, John Lee Hancock. John Lee Hancock. Uh, a movie that you and I love. Uh-huh. Uh, that's my memory. Of okay, it, yeah. and and I did have this thought of you know let's let's see if this is as good as I remember. Uh, better, it's yeah. better than I remember, and it t- and it takes a minute to get going. Like I'll say that. Like uh, for, in watching it, the first twenty minutes, maybe thirty, are hokey ish. Okay. But then it really gets going and really, and I think it's, maybe that's on purpose. Like it introduces Davy Crockett and Jim Bowie and Sam Houston and all these characters as how we think of them, which is here, you know, heroic or badass or any of these other things. And then it develops them as real people. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's, that's a good idea because it is, is, it's a film that's very interested in iconography to the extent, in fact, and I sent you an email about this. Oh yeah. Uh, I was watching the movie and then I, and then I paused it cause I had to go do something else. And I wound up, uh, going down a Wikipedia hole, looking up Davy Crockett, Jim Bowie, uh, Sam Houston, the Alamo. Uh-huh. And I saw a, I saw, um, <clears throat> a painting from like a hundred years ago, well over a hundred years ago at this point, uh, of Santa Ana, um, surrendering to Sam mm-hmm. Houston and, and I remember thinking like, Oh, that's an interesting painting. And that was it. And then as I'm watching the movie, and so I returned to the movie and then when the scene comes for Santa Ana to surrender to Sam Houston, I realized, Oh, they're recreating the painting I was just looking at. <laughs> and I thought like, this is a film that is interested in iconic imagery and both holding that up, but also deconstructing it at the same time. You yeah. know, we do have a moment where Jim Bowie tells his, his slave to just to say, Hey, you get out of here. And then the guy says, are you, are you giving me my papers? And he says, no, you're my property till the day I die. And once this is all over, I'm going to, I'm going to come get you. Right. But right now, now it's entirely possible. He might've been saying that knowing he's not going to be around much longer. Right. But, but- that's still kind of a shitty thing to say. Yeah. I, I, I remember, I remember it's been over 10 years since I've seen it, but uh, I remember that very distinct, distinctly yeah. thinking that's uh, quite an interesting choice to have yeah. your hero say that to a, to a person. Yeah. And it's just, and that's, and it's, it's kind it's a shitty thing, but the character is no less generally heroic. It's such a strange, I love movies that do that. It's one of the things that I liked about, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's character in 12 years a slave, that it's possible to be engaged in this cultural evil and still be a good person because, and, but then there are some people that are good people enough or good enough people or have a certain way of thinking that they look at this cultural evil and think, Oh my gosh, what am I doing? This is, this is the first thing I got to get rid of. Mm-hmm. And so it's just the Alamo is a lot more, com- that the movie is a lot more complex than I think people give it credit for. Cause I went and looked at some of these, some reviews and people were just so quick to dismiss it as just, you know, jingoistic and nationalistic and, and simplest and very yeah. simplistic. And I, I feel like it's not any of those things. Yeah. So anyway, it's if listeners, if you haven't seen it, seek it out. Yeah. The best thing that happened was, uh, I don't know if you know the story that Ron Howard was going to make, the Alamo with Russell Crowe yeah. and he wanted like a $240 million budget or something like that. Uh, I'm probably exaggerating, yeah. but he wanted a huge budget and Disney was like, nah. And, uh, we ended up getting this really great movie. instead. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it would have been interesting the other way, but I feel like the fact, the fact that the film has 
smaller stars mm-hmm. and a lesser known director. It feels, it certainly doesn't feel like an independent film, but it just feels like, uh, I don't know that, uh, that it's more of a hidden gem now. Yeah. So anyway, okay. Yeah, we can move Disney on. has those sometimes because before, before the Alamo, uh, John Lee Hancock made the rookie, which yeah. is an awesome little movie. Still haven't seen it. Um, and I'm kind of remembered in a similar Disney, uh, fashion last year's movie, um, McFarland USA, which mm-hmm. isn't great, but it's quite good. Did you see yeah, it? I did not. I heard it was very good. It's quite good. I mean, it definitely falls prey to some of the, uh, you know, white savior, uh, yeah. um, tropes and cliches, but it is, it is made with a lot of heart, uh, and yeah, some good performances, but that's not what we're here to talk about. What are, what are we here to talk about? All right. So, uh, I'm already in a shaky mood. Um, and <laughs> this movie is not something it's a, I saw a great documentary, Okay, but that will, it will upset anyone who sees it. Okay. Um, the better you, it is, the worse it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, Bobcat Goldthwait directed it. Ah. It's called call me lucky. Okay. And at first I thought, Oh, he made what well, he's making a movie about one of his comedian idol slash friends. Like yeah. the guy he looked up to when he started, when Bob, when Bobcat started doing comedy is essentially a teenager. The guy who was from his area who was like the, you know, ran the, the comedy room at the ding ho, which if you're a stand up comedy historian you know it was like a chinese restaurant that had comedy where uh the boston scenes or sort of the late 70s and early 80s um uh grew and all those boston guys of uh, steve sweeney and lenny mm-hmm. clark and all those guys um uh stephen wright like all these guys came out of the ding ho scene and barry crimmins was the comedian who was kind of running that um and so at first i thought you know given that bobcat goldthwaite has made such challenging material to some very good success and some less good success. Yeah. Um, I thought this is a weird thing for him to take on this, you know, biographical kind of puff piece thing. Uh, but then you learn more about Barry Crimmins and you learn that there's more to him than just being, uh, a, a, you know, a kind of abrasive comedian. He was a very, uh, he, I say he was, he's still alive and he's still, mm-hmm. um, he doesn't do, uh, I guess he doesn't do stand up as such so much anymore. He's more of an activist. He's a very political, um, comedian and he was at the height of his comedy too but uh, I almost I don't know what you know about it I'll say this uh, while I was sick uh-huh. I started watching it oh okay I got five minutes in and I recognize it's just like okay well he and I politically probably don't agree on much that doesn't bother me yeah it, uh, but I will say that I got about five minutes in and then I realized like I'm sick I don't have the energy for this yeah it's it's gonna because so you don't even know where it goes no you, you learn some stuff about his childhood that is um, just uh, gutting and infuriating, mm-hmm. and um, the things that he, uh, the causes that he took up later in life as he um, confronted uh, his own past um, came to define him. And he's done a lot of good work, but it, basically, this is what the movie is about. I think is that he has, um, through his activism, has truly helped and maybe even saved the lives of countless people, but doing so has taken a serious toll on him. Hmm. Uh, it's a heavy draining movie, but I would definitely, uh, recommend seeing it. Even if you do not agree with him politically. Yeah. Good. Good movies. A good movie. Like there's plenty of movies I don't agree with, but if you do it right, I'm on board. Yeah. So again, that's called call me lucky and it is uh, on Netflix. That's why I watched it. So, uh, next another rewatch, Jen and I rewatched, 
well, her for the first time, but it was rewatch for me, uh, Paul Feig's Spy, which I got for Christmas from front of the show, Jason Eakin. Yeah. And uh, just as good. Uh, I, 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 you know what? I'm sorry. Just as good in many ways. There is one thing that I noticed, uh, but it's not just from this movie, but I'll get to it in a moment. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful film. I love Melissa McCarthy, and I feel like Spy is, does some very interesting things. Um, <clears throat> and I think that it's, I'm not sure if I'd say it's a meditation. I think I've mentioned this before, but it's, it feels very much like, um, a movie that is sort of meditating on what it is like to be an actress like Melissa McCarthy in Hollywood, which mm-hmm. is to say, she, you know, she's a larger person. Um, she's not going to get conventional leading roles. Yeah. Uh, and regardless of how she's an Oscar nominee, she's yeah. been on a successful TV show in a couple of successful movies. People know who she is, but there's, there's only, and even though she is a star, she has to be a very specific kind of star. She's never going to be seen as the type of movie star that people like. And, the fact that her character is remarkably competent more so than somebody like Jason Statham's character Mm -hmm. and more so, maybe not more so, but equally as Jude Law's character, she is capable. She is malleable and she is enthusiastic and willing. And yet the CIA or is it the NSA? I think it's the CIA. It's the CIA. Yeah. They keep giving her these identities that fit the way she looks. Right. And it's just like, okay, you're a, I recognize that you're like at the top of your game basically, but uh, yeah, you're going to be the uh, crazy cat lady. And <laughs> yeah. it's often very funny. Her reaction, like, come on. And, and all the, and all the spy stuff, all the James Bond spy stuff. And she's like, okay, here's a uh, something like, if you feel like you've been drugged, you take this pill, but it's in like a bottle of stool softener yeah. and, <laughs> yeah. and stuff like that. And, uh, and so it's, those moments are really, are really funny, but I honestly feel like, and then as, and then when the movie ends, she has proven herself over and over and over again, but the CIA just cannot, it can't not think of her as these homely, silly type of caricatures. And I feel like that's, I feel like that's very much, it's important that somebody like Melissa McCarthy play that part because it would mean so much more than somebody like, for example, a Sandra Bullock, uh, who is a very attractive person and that sort of thing. And I I don't mean, I don't mean to say speak ill of Melissa McCarthy, uh, as far as like how she looks, but if we're thinking in terms of conventional Hollywood attractive, um, so that's, it's, it's something that I thought at the first time, I think it even more now, but the one thing that does get me, and this is something that you'll find in this movie, you'll find it in trailers, you'll find it in sketches, you'll find it in a lot of movies of mm-hmm. the last few years. And it's this, it's, you look like, Oh yeah, blank, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and it's off, it's often very funny, but it's something that is said like eight times between characters back and forth. Yeah. Uh, it's something that is in, you know, the Deadpool trailer. It's something that I was going to say the Deadpool trailer because yeah. And it's, it's something that our friend Pete Holmes would often have in his, uh, in his, in sketches on his show. Uh, yeah, that's right. I, I think it's because it's, um, 
we still have the problem of comedy less so with spy, but too much comedy, um, relying on improvisation. Yeah. And that's just the kind of riffing that comes up. Let's just think of things. This person looks like, yeah. and there's maybe one or two or eight or whatever in the movie. There's probably 200 that they shot undoubtedly because the, and they just kept the one. So uh, yeah, it is. I, I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. Cause I remember, I think the Deadpool trailer was kind of the tipping point point for me on that. Yeah. Uh, when TJ Miller says you look like whatever I was, uh, that, yeah, I was, uh, what, what's the word? I, I rolled my eyes. I, I, I realized, uh, I had heard that one too many times. Yeah. It's like, um, Mr. Creosote with the, uh, wafer, wafer thin, uh, dessert wafer. Yeah. So it's, I feel like my hope is that other people, do you think people don't, like, uh, comedy writers and directors and performers, do you think they don't realize that? Okay. All right. Wait, are we're, we? We don't have too much time. Okay, right. are we somewhere here? Did I arrive? Did in we general, get somewhere? Because I know you have a, a pet peeve that I have, and you've tweeted about a number of them, uh, which is internet speak, which is sure what um, uh, said no one ever. Yeah, uh, all Be- the feels uh, because blank because, instead oh, because of, blank instead oh. of because of blank. Right. Yeah. Uh, um, there's one on Facebook now. This is not a Twitter thing. This is more of a Facebook thing. So you might not okay. see. Okay. Which is I'll just leave this right here. Oh sure sure. I hate that uh, horseshit. I'll leave this here. Um, that it, is all. Yeah. Uh, that is all. Yeah. That's the tough. This. Oh, this. Yeah. Um, and the new one that is now I feel like I've become so sensitive to them that I start to get sick of them even faster. Okay. But have you heard you should feel bad? No, that's, that's, okay. uh, that's a new one to me. Well, it's like, uh, you know, uh, let's say, um, who's that? Uh, people who don't like Max Landis might say Max Landis, you wrote a bad movie and you should feel bad. Well, that's from Futurama. Uh, okay. That's, uh, that's Zoidberg that. saying your music is bad and you should feel bad, yeah, but it's Zoidberg and it's funny, but it's funny when he says it's not funny. exactly, but here's the thing you and I, and a lot of people probably who listen to the show are the kind of people who seek out originality. Mm-hmm. You, you know, we, and, and we also are instinctively nonconformist, I think to a certain sure. extent, um, um, I'll, I'll thank you for lumping me in with that. That sounds good. <laughs> um, I definitely am to, to my detriment, okay. um, by the way, uh, that's another topic for another day. So to me, the idea that everyone else has made a joke mm-hmm. is the, the, the last, like, then that's the last thing I want to do. Yeah. Right. But I think, unless I can put a, uh, a slightly new spin on it, but do you remember, uh, I'm reminded as we walked in, your wife was watching the West wing mm-hmm. and I'm reminded of, uh, when I think about that, a scene from the West wing where they're coming up with polling questions mm-hmm. and CJ says some, one of them is as an average American, blah, blah, blah. And Josh is like, wait, isn't calling them an average American pejorative. And, uh, CJ is like, no, actually most Americans like to think of themselves as average. And so I think it's not, it's not that people who use these things don't realize that everyone has used them to death. They're using them because they're used so often. They're being part of the conversation. They're fitting in by using that, which to me is even more sickening than if they didn't realize it. I don't know if I'd say sickening, but it's, it's upsetting. Are you talking about, are you talking about everyday average Americans or are you talking about professionals? If it's professionals, that's sickening. Uh, If it's everyday people just wanting to be part of something bigger and, and, and I think it feel could be accepted both. as a I mean, result. Uh, it, it, could, it could be both. Some professionals might be hacks. I don't know. I don't want to call TJ Miller a hack. I'm a fan. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, I, I, I do. 
because yeah like you i have noticed these phrases being used over and over again um on twitter and other places in the internet um and uh unlike you i apparently have continued thinking about this for hours and hours after you have and come to this conclusion oh it's i mean it's a thing that when i see it on facebook anytime the the i'll just leave this here that's the one that has really kind of emerged over yeah. in for me well, uh in the last few months and every time i see it the thing that that I, the first thing i think is why why are you still saying that don't you realize everybody else has yeah. said it yeah but i guess that's yeah your theory yeah. is it's because everybody else has said it. it's a, like now i'm gonna do mine that's exactly what i think it is um i'm reminded of an old i, I don't know if this is even a regular bit but just a bit that i saw paul of tompkins do once okay. about the idea that corny phrases were funny the first time like the first time someone said you get this and you get this you do the math it was yeah. probably hilarious oh no question uh and i think um i think about that like the first time on a message board or twitter two people started an argument and a third person said grabbing the popcorn that was probably funny the first time <laughs> now it makes me want to throw my phone out the window <laughs> because it's so old and so tired yeah um yeah. Uh, anyway, so we've gone down this path, but, uh, I do think it's, it's a bigger, I think it's a more of a losing battle than you and I even think it is. <laughs> like, I think you and I want to think if we could just make everyone realize everyone else has already used these, yeah. they'll stop. But I don't think it is. I think we're, we're having the wrong argument. Oh boy. Okay. All right. Well, that was, that was a fun conversation. I did not expect us to head down that path, um, but I like that you and I are, uh, you know, going against the swimming upstream. Yeah. So, uh, okay. Uh, next is one. This, is this your last one? No, I have two more. Um, two more. We did not work this out. Uh, really? One, two, three, four, five. Yeah. I, we, we worked this out. Okay. It's fine. All right. Um, okay. Uh, my second to last movie for this movie journal, uh, is a movie that I, think i liked i need to watch it again okay. it's an odd movie it's called slow west oh okay yeah did you see it i did not i've been told i would like it i think you would um i'm not quite sure how to feel about it and i'm definitely in the mood that i'm in not quite sure how to uh articulate um how i think i might feel about it uh either it's a western i guess I mean, it is. It takes place in the West. It has mm-hmm. all the trappings of a of a Western, but it doesn't seem to be about any of the things that a Western is about, or that we think of Westerns being about. Okay. So I guess that makes it revisionist, but I, I, it's. I, I guess it's a postmodernism that it's aware of itself as a Western. And so is trying not to be that it's trying to tell essentially a very modern story that I don't, I don't want to go into explaining because, um, you know, like with a lot of movies, you don't, you don't really, f- the, the, what this, <laughs> sorry, I'm not talking well today. Yeah. <clears throat> you keep at it, buddy. What the story is about becomes more apparent as the movie goes on. So I oh, don't okay. want to say what the story is about because, um, I think, I think different people with different life experiences might, it might dawn on them at different points in the movie, what they're actually watching. Oh, I like that. Um, but it is, uh, not something I would, um, hesitate to recommend because it's, uh, you know what? Actually, I you would, found, you would hesitate. Well, <laughs> I guess I did hesitate just now. Have you ever, 
uh, you probably uh, even more so than me have had this. Um, have you ever heard a movie described as slow when you're like, that's the opposite of my experience? Yes. Because constantly. <laughs> yeah. And I remember that it has just happened at the Sundance. We'll do when we do our Sundance because I saw yeah. way more movies than we're talking about here. We're just, right, right. I'm just not talking about the Sundance movies. Uh, everyone was saying, even people who liked Kelly Reichardt's certain women were saying, Oh, it's like, it's a great movie, but it's like watching really beautiful paint dry or something like yeah. that. And I, this movie flew by for me. Certain women, I thought it was fantastic uh, and completely engaging. And so I've seen reviews of slow West saying that it's a very slow moving movie. It's not to me. It's got such a sense of humor and oddness to it. Um, and it's under 90 minutes. So I almost there couldn't possibly be slow. Um, it didn't seem slow to me at all. It ends with a huge gun, like a huge shootout. It's got, yeah. it's got all the action you could want. Uh, so I, I guess I don't know what people are. People just watching like John wick and the raid all day, every day. So every movie seems slow. It's and those enti- are both, are both good movies. It's entirely possible that it literally has slow in the title. And so it just, right. I genuinely believe that a title can have that much power. If it was called fast West, which would be weird. Uh-huh. It was called if it was called slow fast, people wouldn't know what to write. Um, it'd be like, yeah, it was a bit, you know, normal pace. Um, <laughs> but uh, I genuinely feel like by by calling it slow west, people just instinctively assume it is slower than than yeah, it is. That's weird. Um, um, but at the same time, it's just you never know. I've had people, and this was like th- this is. I'm interested to know if this will flabbergast you as much as it did me. I've had people describe 12 angry men as slow. Yeah, that's not, are you shitting me? Yeah, that's <laughs> because it all takes place in one room. It's like, it's constant activity. Constant. Yeah, I guess because what, there's no ray guns in it or whatever. <laughs> Grow up. I do appreciate um, that you didn't say transformers. You went about 50 years earlier. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, okay. I, and there's another thing I'll say. Uh, okay. I know. I feel like I talk about, um, I don't get like, I try not to get too fanboyish about things, but I love the best show with Tom Sharpling. Mm-hmm. I listen to it religiously and have, uh, for years and years. Um, and I remember Tom Sharpling saying something about inglorious bastards, uh, about the scene, the, I guess the first scene, but the part when Hans Landa pulls the largest smoking <laughs> pipe ever yes. out of his coat. He's like, and, and Tom Sharpling said something. He's like five minutes into this movie, the stupidest thing I've ever seen in a movie happened and it worked. And that's when I knew I was on board. Yeah. Now this is, there's something that happens very late in slow West. That is, I, this is going to sound, I'm not going to describe what it is, but this is going to sound like I'm, this can't be. There's a visual gag in slow West that would not be out of place in a Zucker Abraham Zucker movie. Okay. And the fact that it works, that in the middle of a violent and sad sequence, I laughed out loud and it still worked, shows that, okay, this, this movie is working, even though I, I, think, I feel like I need to watch it again to get a better idea of what it's about under the surface or under the, under the surface. <laughs> there's a, there's a lot I will of be saying something like that uh, in a couple of movies. Okay. Um, the fa- but the fact that this visual gag worked tells me that this movie is working and, uh, any hesitation I have to recommend it is, uh, on me and I should probably watch it again. I got to watch this movie. All right. What's next for you next for me. And by the way, I did miscount, uh, ah, simply, simply because the title of the first film was so long that it spilled into the second line there. And I forgot to, uh, take that. Oh, into so you account. have fewer than you thought. I have you fewer. Oh, that works out. So, uh, next for me is the second, um, um, 
hammer horror film that I watched. It is uh, also directed by Terrence Fisher, but it came out about 10 years earlier. It's called The Mummy, uh, also with Peter Cushing, but featuring Christopher Lee as The Mummy. And it's what's really interesting is that this film came out before Frankenstein Must Die, um, but I watched it after. And The Mummy, with with its flashbacks and its structure, it's still very good. I liked it a lot. But with its flashbacks and its structure, it fe- it came out in 1959. Hmm. And it feels much more 1959. It feels much more conventional. Um, and there's still a lot of, there's still imagery that I like. It's still surprisingly, I, I've never cared much about any mummy stories, but uh, Christopher Lee and the way he carries himself and like what he does with his eyes and just also just the, the context of the story uh, makes the character surprisingly sympathetic. Um, but, uh, and, and there's just, there's a lot of good in that movie, but it's so interesting to see the impact of the culture from one movie to another because Frankenstein must, must die has a heavily implied rape scene. Mm-hmm. It has, certain some very disturbing ideas and elements it has a lot more blood and then this and it frankenstein must die or frankenstein must be destroyed did i say must die yeah i'm sorry frankenstein must be destroyed that's what i've written not merely die yeah i don't want a trace of him yeah uh and so uh yeah that um feels very much like a movie that came out in the 60s when boundaries were being pushed the mummy very much 1959 and it's so interesting but still definitely still having certain qualities of of hammer horror and it was just very interesting it's it's a movie that i that i recommend i like it quite a bit um but when what i had heard about with with hammer horror and undoubtedly the other two movies in the set are you know christopher lee dracula movies and from what i hear those are much more in line with what we think of as hammer horror i think they came they even came out in the 70s um and so uh, so the mummy was, was an earlier one and, but you can still see the, the seeds of what would come later in it, but it's not there yet, but it was still very interesting. And I'm glad I watched it. Okay. Uh, my final film, this is the, the third movie journal in a row where I will talk about a film that I watched by the Taviani brothers because okay. I had been over the past month watching these three movies because they are, uh, being released in a theater here in Los Angeles. I don't know if you know about the, the, uh, uh, aria or aria fine arts theater in beverly hills it's been dormant for a while and Mm -hmm. this past fall uh lemley opened it up oh okay and so this week starting tomorrow um they are doing a week-long uh taviani brothers retrospective where they were multiple times showing these three films that have been restored so two journals ago i talked about padre padrone uh aka father and master uh last movie journal i talked about the night of the shooting stars and this time i am talking about the uh third and final um, film in this uh, uh, trio uh, called Chaos K-A-O-S it is an anthology film I mean it's all by the same directors but it is uh, four short stories uh, I mean there's a there's a very very brief prologue uh, and then there's an epilogue that is long enough that it almost is five short stories but it's basically four short stories um, and they're all based on stories by the same same author uh and if you are if you live in los angeles or if this taviani brothers retrospective is playing anywhere else i i don't know if it is yet but if you live in los angeles and you're gonna you know pay theater prices and you're only gonna see one of these i I suggest seeing all three of them but if you're only gonna see one make the commitment for the 
three hour and 10 minute, I think it is, uh, chaos because it's, um, beautiful. Uh, it's worth, uh, I, I, you know, I watched it on, you know, hooking my laptop up to my TV, mm-hmm. but, uh, I'm, uh, I can't imagine it would be any, be anything less than stunning on, on the big screen. It has, uh, uh, hints of magical realism in the stories. It, uh, it has, the, the stories are all over the place in terms of their tones, I guess, but they're all rooted in the same sort of, um, uh, agrarian, like peasant, Italian peasant, early 20th century life. Um, the first story is about a, um, mother whose two sons uh, have moved to America and she 14 years ago and she sends them letters every week and they've never once written back to her. Um, and yet she has another son living in the same town that she lives in that she doesn't, that she is estranged from. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second story is like a werewolf story. Mm-hmm. And then the third story is sort of a, a quirky little sort of fable about a guy who accidentally or maybe not accidentally seals himself up inside a giant, uh, clay jar. Uh, um, and then the fourth one is a little heavier in that it's about, um, a group of farmers who rent their land that they farm on, um, from a wealthy land baron who lives in town. They want to, in their collective area, they want to, the right to build a cemetery to bury their dead because currently they have to uh, carry their dead more than a day to the nearest cemetery. And uh, this guy says, no, you can farm this land, but you can't bury your people in my land. And so it's a, uh, it's about them, them wanting to <laughs> build a cemetery hmm. a bit heavier. Um, and then the, and the, then they all turn into werewolves. Right. <laughs> and then the final one is not based on a story. It's, um, it's an imagined, um, little the epilogue is not based on stories it's an imagined story about the author mm-hmm. um and uh i i, I don't want to say much more there's a review of the three films as a collective on the website uh already um and i would definitely recommend uh checking out the taviani brothers and i hope to see more of their output they have a new they have a new film that is playing festivals uh this past year and i guess continued to uh this year and they're they're like 85 now and still making uh still making movies um i had heard of them because i remember caesar must die came out in 2012 that Mm -hmm. uh, made kind of a splash as we have a review of that on the website um uh but i definitely want to check out more of their of their films uh and if yeah if you live in los angeles go to the fine arts theater all right okay so my last movie and I'm a little bit iffy on whether I can talk about it because it, it doesn't come out for two months, roughly. Yeah. But there was no embargo date. Yeah, so it, I think it, we're played, um, it played Toronto last fall. So oh, it's, great. it's already been out. Okay. So it is called Eye in the Sky, and it is directed by Gavin Hood, a guy whose work includes uh, Totsi. I never know if that's how you say it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then With he, uh, Dustin Hoffman? <laughs> <laughs> well done. Um, so... And then he directed the X-Men Origins Wolverine, which apparently is not very good. Uh-huh. He directed Rendition, which I didn't think was very good. Um, I'm surprised you saw it. Well, it seems I, like no one saw it. Like the movie. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I could have like, dreamed that it existed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's uh, they. It, it's available on VHS somewhere, I think. Um, <laughs> I dreamed last night, by the way, that I got a parking ticket. Okay. And then when I woke up... My I pillow did, was gone. <laughs> 
yeah. <laughs> I didn't remember it, but then I was walking my dog and I saw a car with a parking ticket. And then I was like, oh, I was just, I get, glad I didn't get that parking ticket that I dreamed about. <laughs> it's like, oh, I had this other guy's dream. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, man. Um, but yeah, uh, what the hell was I talking about? Gavin Hood. Gavin. Oh, yeah. So yeah, rendition wasn't very good. Um, I think I saw it cause it had a good cast, mm-hmm. um, but not unlike lions for lambs. It was one, it was like this political anti-war, right. you know, terrorism type of movie. Um, that just wasn't very good cause it very much led with its, with its ideals and that right, sort of right. thing, which I tend not to like. Uh, and I thought that's what Eye in the Sky was going to be. It is about, you know, the war on terror. It is about the use of drones, um, both for oh. surveillance and for combat. And it has a really good cast, including Helen Mirren, Alan Rickman, Aaron Paul, uh, Barkat Abdi, who was really nice to see on screen again. Uh, Jeremy Northam, always nice to see him as mm-hmm. well. Um, <clears throat> and it is, uh, it is about this, just the surveillance of this, uh, this house in, uh, I wish I could remember where am I in Africa where uh, a number of terrorists that are high up on the list uh, have, are congregating in that house and then they're going to move out and do something else. And so it's like w- they're all in one place. So the idea was we're going to go in and capture them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then they see they they use some surveillance to see inside the house and they see that they are. Uh, putting together uh, suicide vests. And so suddenly it's, oh, we need to blow up this house. Mm-hmm. But there is a high potential for collateral damage. And so they're trying to minimize that, but they still realize w- w- this is a thing we need to do. Yes, people might, people are, are, a couple people are going to get killed as collateral damage. As opposed to the probably, I think they said like the estimated eighty people mm-hmm. that will get killed if these guys in suicide vests go and do what they want, what they need to do. So, <clears throat> so what's interesting is that, uh, and it's not just the Americans; it's basically the Americans working with the British. Uh, all of these actors that I listed, none of them are in the same place. You know, one person's oh, in big short style. Yeah. But they're also, they're all looking at the same images. They're all in okay. communication with each other. But so they're all sharing scenes together, but not sharing the same space, which is in itself kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, but what I, and so the two big things that I like, one is that when you, when you start watching, and I was talking about this earlier, when you start watching, you think like, all right, there's going to be really, this looks kind of broad and I feel like it's going to lead with its, with its, it's, it's a message movie and it's going to lead with that. And then, so that's about 20 minutes in. And then I think it drops that. I think it uses that to kind of bring us in. And then mm-hmm. it drops that and embraces a complexity like, like, like I have not seen before in a, in a very long time with movies that are about war, about modern warfare. Um, because there, there are people that say like, Hey, if, and they're, and they're talking about the, there are people that talk about the propaganda war, which is to say, if it's like, if these guys go and, and blow themselves up in a mall, then we win the propaganda war. Whereas if we kill them and kill innocent civilians, they win the propaganda war. And either way, it's about getting people on our side, getting public support on our side or on their side. So that's one side of it. And then people feeling very angry that, you know, we're just sitting drinking coffee and deciding the fates of others. 
But then you also have other people saying, yes, that is unfortunate. What is more unfortunate is 80 people dead in a mall. Mm-hmm. And it's just that back and forth, back and forth. Uh, and sometimes the people you like make a decision you don't like. Sometimes the people that uh, you don't like make a really strong case for mm-hmm. something that maybe you didn't think was a good idea. And you come to realize like, yeah, this is war. There is no good option. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I think it's, and I think all the actors do a really great job. Uh, and, but on top of all of that, <clears throat> Something that is particularly interesting. It's a very suspenseful movie. I mean, I'm 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 glued to my chair, but it is also at times very very funny. Oh, good. Because, but but it doesn't it doesn't break the tension. Uh, it is comic relief, but it's comic relief that springs naturally from the situation because the sheer number of times they have to go up the ladder to get approval for something that needs to happen in like three minutes. Uh-huh. Uh, and then the person, uh, and then like the person that they are talking to is like, Hmm. And then they just keep getting information. They ask all the questions and the person's like, I'm going to have to go up to the foreign secretary. And they're like, Oh, and they're like, we, we need this right now. And then finally they get to the foreign secretary. It's like, I think we got to talk to the U S secretary of state Mm -hmm. and just, and so there's all these people on phones and there's people who, and then when they get to the secretary of state played by actor, Michael O'Keefe, who's a guy that I've liked for a long time. He, um, he's on, I know him from, he was on, he was in the great Santini. Okay. He played Robert Duvall's son. And then he was on Roseanne played the character, Fred, Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, really good actor. And, uh, and so he's only in the, in the, in the movie for a, a brief moment. And he's like on a diplomatic tour of, uh, China. And so he gets this call and he says, so wait, what's, he's like, what's, what's the issue here? And they said, well, there's this and this and this. And he goes, and that house has, uh, numbers two, four and five on the kill list. They're all in one place. Yeah. Why are you bothering me with this? <laughs> Do it. You know? And it seems callous, but he's making the, he's simply, he's simply, making the point, uh, coming to a conclusion faster that every, and everybody else has come to the same conclusion. Like he's just being practical in a faster way, but he doesn't. So he looks kind of callous, but he's still making a good point anyway. So it's funny. It's suspenseful. It's complex. It is a movie that I had no expectation of thinking was, was very good at all. And I, I loved the movie. I thought it was really good. I might be overselling it. It's it's possible that people are going to think it's not that good, but I really think, I like any movie that refuses to simplify something that is not simple. It's out March 11th in New York and Los Angeles. Yes. Eye in the sky. And that's the movie journal. Bye.